If you have your Bibles, please turn with me to 1 Peter chapter 5. Our text this morning will be verses 6 through 11. 1 Peter 5, verses 6 through 11. This is God's word for us today. So let's pay heed to it. Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, so that at the proper time he may exalt you, casting all your anxieties on him because he cares for you. Be sober-minded. Be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour. Resist him, firm in your faith, knowing that the same kinds of suffering are being experienced by your brotherhood throughout the world. And after you have suffered a little while, the God of all grace, who has called you to his eternal glory in Christ, will himself restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. To him be the dominion forever and ever. Amen. Please pray with me. For the word of God is living and active and sharper than any two-edged sword, and piercing as far as the division of soul and spirit, of both joints and marrow, and able to judge the thoughts and intentions of the heart. We pray, O oh Lord, that you would now give us ears to hear and hearts to obey your word. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. You know, we've all heard uh, reports from missionaries back from the field and from those in our own congregations who, who have returned from short-term mission trips. And, and, and the sense of excitement that they have about what they've done and the adventures that they've had, they're infectious. You know, I love hearing, I love listening to those reports. You know, and we can experience this same elation in ministry, whether we go halfway around the world or across the street in obedience to the Lord to pour out our lives for others. You know, we can know that excitement, that we're in the right place, doing the right thing, at exactly the right time. And you know, you, know, you know this. And we have experienced, we've all experienced that. But here's the thing, and you know this too. Every time there is advance, conquest, a sense of victory in Jesus as he empowers us and directs us, there's always opposition. There will be distractions. Disruption of the primary goal. Things happen, you know, when people step out to do a work for the Lord. Well, behind these disruptions is an enemy. An enemy that's described in many places in the Bible. Now take Revelation chapter 12, verse 17. Then the dragon, that's Satan was furious with the woman, that's the church, and went off to make war on the rest of her offspring, those who keep the commandments of God and hold to the testimony of Jesus. That's you and me. That's all Christians. Here's the reality. If you try to make your life count for Jesus, 
If you're out there doing good work for the Lord, you will be involved in spiritual warfare. Now, of course, if you're complacent and, and you never get off the couch, you don't have to worry a whole lot about that. But if you take Jesus seriously, if you acknowledge his claim on your life, then Satan is going to come after you. You can count on it. Well, Peter deals with all this here. He talks about the reality of persecution for the name of Christ, of suffering because of Satan and his opposition. Now, Satan is the one behind the fallen creation, this rebellious world system that you and I live in every day. This dragon is the one who holds individuals in captivity. Now, the men and women who oppose our faith are not really acting as free agents. The fact is they're in bondage to the evil one, to Satan himself. So Satan is our real enemy, not the people who often make our lives miserable. Now, there, these six verses, I think they fall basically into two sections. The first section, verses 6 through 9, focuses on the activity of God as all-powerful and mighty and tells us that we are protected by that power. The second, verses 10 and 11, it's a great benediction of God over his people and tells us of the incredible resources that God offers us as he's perfecting us. He's the God of all grace. So let's dig in and take a closer look at this marvelous passage. Peter lists four imperatives or commands at the beginning of these verses. The first two in verses 6 and 7 tell us to focus on the Lord, to obey Him. The second two imperatives in verses 8 and 9 focus on Satan and tell us very clearly to resist Him. You know, verse 6 calls us back once again to submission. Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, so that at the proper time he may exalt you. Now, the therefore in that verse points back to verse 5, where Peter says, Clothe yourselves, all of you, with humility toward one another. For God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. You know, the Bible consistently teaches that God is an active opponent of proud arrogant people. Now, whatever form pride takes, self-confidence, self-sufficiency, whatever, God is opposed to pride. And so here's the thing. You know, when surrounded by, by trouble and difficulty and struggle, we don't want to be battling God at the same time because of disobedience in our lives. You see, God is either an adversary or he's an ally. He does give grace. He does give you his abundant resources to withstand suffering and struggle, but only to those who are submissive, humble people. That's an important principle. Now, if we can accept a position of humility before him, submit to him, the result, he says in verse 7, is that we can rest secure in his safety, in his commitment to us, Cast all your anxieties on him because he cares for you. That's the second imperative. 
Dear ones, our God cares about us personally. We are known intimately. Jesus said that the very hairs on our head are numbered. He knows every detail, every single detail of our pain and struggle. You know, we don't suffer in anonymity. Jesus, he, he knows us inside out. You know, we may find ourselves in tough circumstances, but we can look beyond them to who God is, what God is doing, and what he's ultimately going to accomplish in our lives. Well, there are two more important imperatives in this section, one in verse 8 and one in verse 9. They bo both call us to battle Satan. You know, in verse 8, Peter calls us to be totally objective about Satan. We are to take Satan seriously. It says there, we're to be sober-minded. We're to be watchful, vigilant. You know, we cannot be lulled into complacency about his opposition to us. We have to be alert to his strategies. And one of his strategies, I think, is accusation to convince us of not being justified in Jesus, to try to make us insecure about our relationship with Christ, to convince us we're not worthy or no longer deserving of Jesus' sacrifice on the cross. Now, in Peter's imagination here, Satan is like a roaring lion. But in reality, he's a wounded, dying lion and it's interesting, that makes him doubly vicious. You know, if you know anything about animals, you know that a wounded animal is much more ferocious and aggressive out of their pain. They're to be feared. So you have in Satan this viciousness. That's frightening. You know, he's looking for someone to swallow whole, to destroy. He wants to attack any individual who represents the kingdom of God. But we need to realize that he's already defeated. The decisive battle which brought him down was won at the cross. Now, Satan knows that his time is short. I think that's another reason he's so ferocious. He's running out of time. He knows it. Not only is he short on time, but his influence is strictly limited. You know, he can never ultimately hurt or destroy those who belong to the Lord Jesus. You know, just read the book of Job. That entire book confirms that. And because God has Satan on a short lease, and even though he may scare the dickens out of us at times, verse 9 says we can stand and we can resist him. Resist him, firm in your faith knowing that the same kinds of suffering are being experienced by your brotherhood through the world. Now, I think there are several ways listed here that we can resist Satan. We can stand firm in our faith, claiming the promise that we're, we're the beloved of Jesus Christ. Jesus cares about us. He knows us intimately. We're protected by the Good Shepherd who protects his sheep from, from angry, hungry lions. And verse 9 further tells us to resist Satan confident in the certainty 
That suffering at the hands of Satan is required of all believers, everywhere, at all times. Now, suffering really is normative for the Christian. It's very interesting. Satan always means for suffering to be destructive. He wants to devour us. He wants to destroy us completely. But God has his own purposes in suffering. He wants it to be instructive for us, to toughen us up, to mature us, to grow us up for battle. Well, there's a whole lot more that, uh, that we could say here. But I want to move on and get to this, this great benediction which ends this passage. Now, this passage, it's wonderful. It ends with a great doxology of praise, which is expressed here because God is graciously at work in our lives in spite of any suffering that we go through. Verses 10 and 11. And after you have suffered a little while, the God of all grace, who has called you to his eternal glory in Christ, will himself restore Confirm, strengthen, and establish you. To him be the dominion forever and ever. Amen. Dear ones, this is the light at the end of the tunnel in the process of our suffering. These are great, great words of encouragement. Great words of promise. They're great words of assurance. Peter says here that our suffering is only for a little while no matter how long it seems to us. You know, it, it does often seem long, I think, from our perspective. But compared to the joy and the glory that will follow when Jesus takes us home, our suffering really doesn't amount to much. The Apostle Paul talks about the suffering in his own life, talks about the difficulty and the pain. How does he describe it? He describes it as slight as momentary afflictions, slight and minimal, and only momentary compared to the glory that was going to be revealed to him. Do you, do you remember what Paul's slight momentary afflictions were? Well, he describes them in 2 Corinthians 11. Here's what he says. Five times I received at the hands of the Jews the forty lashes, less one. Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was stoned. Three times I was shipwrecked. A night and a day I was adrift at sea. On frequent journeys in danger from rivers, danger from robbers, danger from my own people, danger from Gentiles, danger in the city, danger in the wilderness, danger at sea, Danger from false brothers in toil and hardship through many a sleepless night in hunger and thirst, often without food in cold and exposure. And apart from other things, there is the daily pressure on me of my anxiety for all the churches. That's Paul's slight momentary affliction. And that's the little while that Peter talks about here. Peter goes on in verse 10, he says that we're dealing here with the God of all grace, the God of all resource, all adequacy, all provision. Now, Peter says, I'm not talking here about a God of little graces. I'm talking 
about the God of boundless grace. I'm talking here about the God of all grace, of quickening grace, of convincing grace, of pardoning grace, of believing grace, the God of comforting, supporting, sustaining grace. If he's the God not of one grace or of two graces, but of all graces, if in him there is stored up an infinite, boundless, limitless supply of grace, how can you and I ever ask for too much? We can't. You know, when you individually and as a congregation come to this God of all grace, you should come with large petitions, which is precisely what Peter does here. You know, there's a story told of one of Alexander the Great's soldiers who, when he was told he could have whatever he asked for as a reward for his courage and and valor in battle, he asked for a sum of money so large that Alexander's treasurer refused to pay it until he talked to the monarch. And so when he went to see Alexander, the king smiled and he said, It's true, you know, that that's a lot for him to ask for. But it's not too much for Alexander to give. I admire him for his faith in me. Let him have all he asks for. You know, as you you move into the rather murky future of 2014, let your petitions always be large. Ask to be perfected, to be established, to be strengthened. To be settled. Because your God is the God of all graces. And dear ones, he will do it. You know, the promises in verse 10 tell us, they're very interesting. They tell us that God is going to do four things for you as you navigate through this coming year. He asks that God's people receive four things. That they be perfected, established, strengthened, and settled. You know, I think you've realized by now that there are a lot of different translations of these four or future verbs, primarily because I think it's hard to distinguish among them. And what Peter has done here is to sort of pile up four closely related terms that together underscore the good that God intends for his people. And even now is producing in them, even if you're suffering. You know, I kind of like what the King James Version says says to perfect, to establish, to strengthen, and to settle. So using those verbs from the King James Version, let's look just for a moment at what God intends for his people in this marvelous benediction. The first blessing that Peter asked for is that God's people be perfected. Now the basic idea of that verb is to put in order, to equip, to fit together, to restore. You know, the, uh, literally the Greek word means to repair or mend a net or to, or to set a broken bone. You know, Peter was a fisherman. So he'd think of sewing or repairing the holes in his fisherman's net. Here's the principle. Peter is saying that suffering will add to our character. It will repair flaws in our character, making us more like Jesus Christ. You know, Paul tells us in Philippians 
that he is confident of this very thing, that who, he who began a good work in you will perfect it until the day of Christ Jesus. Dear ones, God will never begin to sculpture out a perfect human being and not complete it. He will never just sort of sketch out a Christian and not fill in all the details. He will never leave his works unfinished. God will perfect you. He will repair you. He will put you in order individually and as a congregation as you continue to walk with him, as you are faithful. But you need to also understand that it must be after you've suffered a little while. Things and people generally cannot be perfected except by fire. You know, there's no way of getting the sin, the impurities out of us except through the furnace of affliction. And so I pray that God would continue to equip you, to perfect you, to restore you, to put you in order in this uncertain time of looking ahead into a new year. A second blessing that Peter asked for is that you might be established, which means to fix firmly, to set fast. You know, think of concrete or steel. May God fulfill to you this rich benediction that you would not be like sort of like smoke coming out of a chimney or the flowers of the field which are here today and gone tomorrow. You know, as you move forward into this year, this new year, may every good thing that you have be an abiding thing. May your faith be built on solid rock that will endure that fire which will consume the wood, hay, and stubble of the hypocrite. May you be rooted and grounded in love. May your convictions be deep. You know, I pray in this turbulent time that you and I live in that the God of all grace would allow you not to be exercised with doubt, but to know, to know that you are secure in Christ. That resting upon the rock of ages, you would know that you cannot perish if your feet are fixed there. May your hope in 2014 be fixed upon nothing less than Jesus' blood and righteousness. And may it be so firmly fixed that it would never shake. May your whole life be fixed and established. The third blessing that Peter mentions here is to be strengthened. You know, I think there are some Christians whose, whose character seems to be fixed and established, but they still lack energy and, and force and vigor. They need strength for spiritual battles. You know, I, I think it's true that many Christians don't have the stomach for war. When they hear of conflict, their knees start to knock. They get all wobbly. And they run and hide. But you know, strong Christians, a strong church, marches to the sound of the guns. They smell the smoke of battle from a distance. And they rejoice when it's joined. They laugh at their enemies. They're not overwhelmed by circumstances. You know, a lady I know 
got an email from a friend the other day, which I think illustrates what a strong Christian should be like. This friend admonished the lady to always live her life in such a way that when her feet hit the ground in the morning, Satan would shudder and say, oh no, she's awake. <laughs> you see, that's a strong Christian. And it's the kind of Christian that we find recorded for us in chapter 11 of the book of Hebrews, the great chapter of God's heroes. There you see how men and women of faith, like you and me, quench the power of fire. They shut the mouths of lions. They shook their fists in the face of death. They put foreign armies to flight, all by the power of faith in their God. Those are strong Christians. I pray that God would strengthen you like that. But remember, if he does, you'll have to suffer for a while. Well, the last blessing is that you would be settled. It's an architectural term. And it means to, it means to place on a foundation. You know, a house or a church founded on a rock will withstand any storm. But one built on sand will collapse when the storms come. There are many individual Christians and many congregations who are today not settled, who are not laid on a firm foundation. You know, I think of that great verse over in Isaiah 28, verse 16, which speaks of Christ as the only foundation on which to rest. There is no other. God says to Judah in that verse, and he says to us, Behold, I am the one who has laid as a foundation in Zion a stone, a tested stone, a precious cornerstone of a sure foundation. Whoever believes will not be in haste. And I don't need to remind you that Jesus Christ is the foundation of the entire way that God deals with us as human beings. Jesus Christ is the foundation laid by God for all of our security, whatever the future may bring. Dear ones, as you look ahead into this new year, grab hold of that truth. Build upon it. Settle upon it. And you will be eternally secure. I don't care what happens. Neither earthly calamities, changes in your life, disappointments, sorrows, losses, Delays in building programs, not the scourge of sin, not the last enemy death, not the final retribution and judgment will ever touch you. The one foundation on which you can build secure and safe is that foundation which is laid in the incarnation, life, death, resurrection, and ascension of the Son of God foundation of all of our security is Jesus Christ. But not only is Christ the foundation of all our security, I think you know he's also the foundation for all of our thinking and opinions and doctrine, for all our beliefs, for all our knowledge. In him are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. And whatever facts you and I are able to grasp, 
in our feeble thinking in regard to all the most important truths of this life are to be found in the life and death of Jesus Christ and in the truths which these reveal. He truly is the Alpha from whom all truth must be deduced. He's the Omega to which it all leads up to. You know, if we know anything about God, it's due to Jesus Christ. If we know anything about ourselves, it's due to Him. If we know anything about what man ought to do, it's because He has done all human duty. And if into the murkiness of the future, this congregation has ever had one clear beam of insight, it's because He has died and risen again. If you have Christ and you ponder the principles that are involved in and flow from the facts of his life and death, then that truth will indeed set you free. To know him is to hold the key to all mysteries. And knowledge without him is just groping around in the darkness. Well, one final comment and then I'm done. <clears throat> you know, it's my prayer for you Dear ones, this congregation that I love for 2014, that you will live nearer to God in Christ than you've ever done before. That's my prayer. I'm going to be praying it every day this year. You know, when you've preached for as long as I have, I figured up, I've been preaching now for about 21 years, you start to recycle the stories <laughs> and the illustrations that you used before. And that's certainly true of the story that I'm about to tell you now. You probably remembered it. Remember, it's one of my favorite stories because it's a dog story. I love dog stories. I had a seminary professor, Dr. Steve Brown, <clears throat> who lived in South Florida, when Hurricane Andrew came ashore in 1993. And he told me that, that during the hurricane, his German shepherd, Quincy, stayed close to him. As Steve said, he hid in the closet. And Steve said he could hear parts of the roof coming off. Large trees were blowing against the house. And flying objects were pounding against the walls. And then the ceiling in the closet started to collapse. And they were forced to flee to another part of the house. And then he said, do you know what Quincy did? He dropped his ball in my lap and wanted to play. And Steve Brown said, you know, he wanted to say, Quincy, don't you realize that we're about to die? Don't you understand that the house is about to blow away? Don't you know that the whole world has changed? Are you crazy? This is not the time to play ball. But then he realized something. He said he realized that Quincy felt he was safe because he was with him. Dear ones, it's that way with us and God. We are called to trust him even in the midst of trials and suffering and uncertainty and change and frustration and the hurricanes that we go through in this life. May this be our prayer to God this year. Father, enable us to be with you, to walk with you this year. Enable us by your grace to say, Lord, let us recognize afresh that whatever happens to us this year will always be safe, will always be secure. Satan cannot touch us.
because we're with you. We belong to you. You know, I'm convinced that if you will make that your prayer for this coming year, that God can work with you. He can make things happen in the life of this congregation, despite what Satan may try to do. Dear ones, his promise is sure. This God of all grace, who has called you to his eternal glory in Christ, will himself, even in the midst of trials, suffering, uncertainty, and change, which will surely come in 2014, he will himself perfect, establish, strengthen, and settle you. He will do it. You can count on it. And when he does, I pray that you will give him the glory and the honor that's due his name. Let's pray. Now, our Father, we ask that you would bless these words to our hearts this morning. May we be not only hearers, but doers of your word. Let us always be active in our walk with you, but always depending upon you, the God of all grace. These are turbulent times for those who love you and are called according to your purpose. Bless these dear ones in the days ahead and encourage them to stand firm in the faith, even as you perfect, establish, strengthen, and settle them. In you, their future is not only secure, but it is glorious. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen.